Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Dr. Tony Crisp, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you for having me, Paul. Let's get going. Yeah, right on, Tony. I, 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 we should mention that you and I connected through Mark Jenkins. How do you and Mark know each other? Well, it uh, goes all the way back to uh, I was speaking uh, on the national stage at APAC. I had uh, flown back from Israel to uh, speak uh, back during, uh, I think it was uh, 2010, 2011. And um, they wanted me uh, to speak as an evangelical Christian. And as an evangelical Christian, um, uh, it was uh, a great honor for me uh, to be able to stand. I think there were 17,000 people there. And uh, I uh, spoke from my heart uh, about uh, everything from anti-Semitism to replacement theology and the Church of Jesus today and uh, so forth. And Mark was in the room Mm -hmm. and uh, he said, he asked God, said, if, if I could work with that man, you want us working together, would you work it out for me to meet him today? Because I was being whisked around everywhere as a guest. And so we had a, uh, Christian, uh, outreach dinner is what they called it, uh, or excuse me, luncheon. And, uh, at the table, I was seated with Joel Rosenberg and Mark Jenkins. And so that began our friendship and we have been working together very closely ever since he's my executive producer, uh, for all of the TV shows and, uh, uh, radio, everything. He oversees all of that. He and, a, another, uh, uh, friend, Greg Elgin, who's a, a media guy and producer. And, uh, we brought on, uh, two or three more, uh, since then, uh, to help. And that's how we've got started. And so, um, we uh, work hand in hand together in almost all things Israel. Yeah, I, I had a chance to meet Mark uh, a few months ago, and he is a wonderful person. And, and yeah, extremely, he is. And very, extremely knowledgeable. very knowledgeable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you, you mentioned APAC. Can you describe what APAC is? Yes, uh, that's the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. And uh, that's not a... a, a a PAC as in a political action committee, a public affairs committee, uh, educates. It uh, seeks to educate uh, Congress in this case. They don't deal with the administration as much as the House and Senate to influence um, legislation and keep the U.S.-Israel relationship strong. And and as an evangelical, um, uh, most evangelicals are with KUFI, Christians United for Israel, John Hagee's group, or so forth. They but APAC had been a Jewish organization, uh, Paul, from its very beginning, and, and no uh, non-Jews were in it. In 2007, they made the decision to uh, reach out to uh, evangelicals because they realized we're the greatest friend that Israel has, and uh, we are uh, increasing. They are uh, decreasing as far as the ratio of the population, so they reached mm-hmm. out to us. And they reached out to me, took me um, uh, and uh, 14 others on a major behind the scenes uh, trek uh, uh, to Israel. And I'd been going already for 40 some years and knew the land very well. But this was a political uh, trip uh, to educate us on the U.S.-Israel relationship. It was fascinating. 
fascinating. And so after a year uh, in 2010, I went on the National Council and was on it until 2020. And that's the decision-making body of APAC. We're going to talk a lot more about Israel in general, America's relationship with Israel. Uh, I also want to explore like how you have become who you are today. And so a bit of a, not necessarily sure. chronological, but talk about your, yeah, your life sure. um, in the form of, of, of stories and conversation. But I, I, I want to explore, you've spoken in front of 17,000 people. That, that beats me by about 16,000. And I'm guessing that's not the largest uh, crowd you've spoken in front of. Well, you know, APAC uh, at that time had a national policy forum, and that's what it was, National Policy Conference. And uh, uh, sometime during that, 70% of Congress would be in the audience or would be there somewhere in the Washington, D.C. Convention Center. And uh, it was the premier uh, policy conference in uh, all of uh, the nation. And uh, so uh, I was asked to speak there simply uh, because um, uh, I had just gotten back from that trip and they knew that I had spoken on national level before to audiences and wouldn't be petrified by God's grace. And uh, so uh, I remember, uh, you know, I've spoken from the dais uh, uh, several times. And uh, for the last, uh, for the decade of 2010 to 2020, I uh, always had a, uh, led a breakout group or two or a panel discussion about the U.S.-Israel relationship, uh, and it was a, a very, very uh, blessed experience. I had no qualms with APAC. Uh, the left thinks they're too right. The right thinks they're too left. Uh, but, you know, uh, if you're going to get anything done, whether we like it or not, we have to work with people that uh, don't believe 100% like we do. As a matter of fact, I don't uh, agree with myself with everything. And uh, so it's um, uh, you just have to learn to work with people as much as you can without compromising who you are. Yeah. And it seems to be tougher these days than ever. But I, I don't want to get into the uh, yeah, society sure. stuff that we struggle with sure. today uh, in, in a broad way. I, I definitely. Yeah, want to talk sure. about I know. I know. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. So I, I know where, where you grew up, but uh, why don't you tell our listening audience where you grew up? Well, I grew up in the hills of uh, East Tennessee in the valleys. Uh, I grew up about halfway between Knoxville and Chattanooga, for those who are not familiar with Tennessee, and, and even giving those two cities, which are major cities in East Tennessee, still people may not know where that is. Uh, and so um, it is um, east of Nashville, and um, it's in the Smoky Mountain region between the Cumberland Mountains and the Smokies is Tennessee Valley. It runs from Bristol all the way to Dalton, Georgia. And uh, so I grew up, um, Paul, as one born out of due time. In other words, I, I was born in 56. I just turned 68 years old. And um, uh, I was the youngest of three boys. Uh, when I was seven, my mother um who had married my dad at age 14 to get out of a um, uh, horrible home situation uh, with abuse and so forth, uh, married my dad, who was eight years older. The marriage lasted for 16 years, and and uh, she left, abandoned uh, her three boys. Uh, and my dad, that was the first girl he'd ever kissed, gone to bed with, loved, and he loved her till the day he died. Uh, uh, and so uh, it was... Um, 
it was more than he could take. And so even though he stayed with us the best he could, he could not, uh, he couldn't read or write or anything like that. Very backwoods is an awkward. Uh, and, um, um, so we went to live with our grandmother, my mother's mother. And, uh, it was a very rural, uh, country, uh, just so far uh, out. Uh, our driveway was a half a mile long off the dirt road and I'm wow. not being, not trying to be poor mouth or anything. I'm just telling you the way it was. And so I was raised in the sixties and seventies, the same way that people were in the thirties and forties. My grandmother raised me the same way she raised my mother. So I, we got our water from the spring until I was 10 years old. We didn't have a refrigerator, which was 1966. And, um, we kept all of our, we, uh, milked cows, a couple of cows. My grandmother took the cream, made the butter, I gathered eggs and we bartered uh, eggs and butter at the grocery store, which was about uh, three miles away through the woods and fields. And uh, I would barter eggs and butter for flour, meal, sugar, uh, lard. We raised our own hogs, killed hogs, rendered lard, uh, all that kind of thing. Just like people in the, it was like a Waltons growing up, only the Waltons would have been rich compared to us. And uh, so, uh, that's the way we went. I never read a serious book until I was 19 years old after I came to know Jesus in a personal way. And so, uh, we just, uh, we had no supervision growing up. My grandmother was crippled. We had, we didn't even have a toilet an outside toilet. We had a, a 160 acres of woodland. So we were the early environmentalist. And, uh, so we, uh, we did everything we did outside the day that, um, I really answered the call of God upon my life to preach the gospel. My grandmother was washing on a rub board uh, because uh, that's just the way that we grew up, uh, Paul. But my grandmother was a godly woman. She loved Jesus and she constantly prayed for us. And she didn't know how to pray silently. She always prayed out loud. And so she was always asking God to bring us to himself. And it just, when I was 19, I was at the end of my rope and I came to know Jesus in a personal way and he radically changed my life. Tell me more about that experience, how you went from not being godly to, was it well, one well, it, uh, well, well, you know, again, we had no supervision. Many times I would leave home on as a, as a 10 year old, 11 year old boy, because my grandmother never drove a car. She never got out of the county hardly at all. And uh, so uh, we could leave and go to school and not come back home. You know, uh, some of us would be there, one of the three of us to do the chores around place. But I, I tried to get out where I could go take a shower somewhere because you see uh, growing up, uh, Paul, you know, I would hear older people, uh, that were my age in the sixties, then in their sixties say, ah, boy, that's the way I grew up. Everybody was poor. We didn't even know we were poor. Well, I knew we were poor because everybody else had running water and, and all the conveniences that we have. And, and so, uh, it, it was very difficult and I was in a lot of fights um, and I became very rebellious because I was resentful that I was growing up like that. I hated my mother. I loved my father, but I hated my mother. And uh, when I was 11 years old, just to give you the sense of bitterness. When I was 11, my uh, oldest brother uh, got his license 16 and we didn't have a car, but you know, he got his license and, and uh, we had the hope and dream of one. And, uh, I said, uh, he said to, uh, my, his, our 
other brother, uh, John, said, uh, when you get 16, what, what do you, where does the first place you want to drive? And uh, John gave some kind of answer. And he said, what about you, Tony? What do you do? And I said, well, I'm going to, uh, as soon as I can drive, I'm going to go find that SOB. I didn't say SOB, but I said, I'm going to find that SOB that took our mother away from us. And I'm going to kill him in front of uh, uh, mom. And then I'm going to kill her. Mm. Wow. And that's, a, that's a deep hatred at 11 years old that was in my heart because I'd seen that ruin my dad's life, ruin our lives at the time, I thought. And so I grew up very rebellious. Somebody would make fun of my grandmother and I would just um, um, go into them like a buzzsaw. And so I was in the principal's office a lot. As a matter of fact, when I was pastor at First Southern uh, Baptist San Diego, California, the principal, when he retired, flew me back to speak at his retirement ceremony. It was a big deal. And um, he introduced me. He said, the reason I had Tony Crisp to come back is because he said his eighth grade year, he spent more time in my office than my secretary. And so I really got to know him. And uh, so that was my life going uh, through school. And so I was just very rebellious. And I had gotten to the point to where I was, uh, I, ha I had no ambition, had no desire. And I, uh, right before my 18th birthday, I had begun to think about taking my own life, to, uh, just be very honest. And, and, um, so, um, I, I, my grandmother had prayed for me and she had prayed for me and prayed for me. And, um, when, uh, about a year before, uh, maybe two, uh, my grandmother, uh, we had no wood cook stove and she was always cooking on that. We always had to be up by five o'clock, uh, to eat breakfast, what we would call a big country breakfast now and, uh, biscuits and so forth. And, and she would cook those, uh, and the old wood cook stove. She, I was afraid she was going to get burned with it. And I heard her, uh, weeping one morning It's about four 30. And I got up and creeped in there cause I didn't want to scare her. And I could hear her crying and sobbing. And when I walked around the corner, uh, Grammy still didn't hear me. That's what we called her Grammy. And, and so I could see tears uh, coming off of her face and sizzling on that stove uh, beneath her. And um, she was praying. The reason she was weeping is not she was hurt physically. She was praying for God to save her boys and to give her strength to go on. She was crippled. Uh, remember, we had no outside toilet, so everything she did personally, she had to do standing up because she could never bend her knee. And, uh, uh, so I mean, it's just a mountain woman that loved God and wanted believed that her mission in life was to get her, her boys raised and for them to come to know Jesus. And, and I tell you, Paul, I never got away. I never got away from that. And wow. still to this day, I'm tender about it. Um, because, uh, when I was out there thinking about, okay, I'm going to end my life. Or I'm going to never going to amount to anything because that's what people had told me. Uh, the uh, store that I went to, I remember the, the ladies of the little community would be in there and I'd go on the other side of the aisle after greeting them. And, you know, when you're poor, people think you're deaf. And so, um, uh, I would hear them say, there goes that little Chris boy. He's never going to amount to a hill of beans. He's never going to amount to anything. Somebody needs to take those, uh, those kids away from Miss McGuire. And what they didn't realize was if they had taken us away from, uh, her, they would have taken away our lifeline because she was our lifeline, not only our lifeline to this life, but to the next. And, and so I never could get away from the prayers of my 
godly grandmother. And so um, I came to the point uh, one day that I just said, God, whatever's left with the rest of my life, it's a wreck. I've made a wreck out of my life. Would you just take me and use me somehow? God, I give you everything I am. I turn from everything I've ever thought. Just help me to know how to know you in a personal way. And I'm telling you, I cannot tell you in syllable or in sentence what God did in my life that day. I'd heard, you know, I had long hair down on my back. I was smoking, cussing, drinking. And everybody would always say, the preacher would say, boy, you need to get that old haircut. You need to, you know, just country as could be and telling me what all I need to do. Well, God did more in five minutes to clean me up than uh, 18 years, 19 years of preaching. Uh, and it was because of the prayers of my godly grandmother. I just, and I went and told her what God had done. And, and, and she just, uh, that, that was her life. And, and my two older brothers came to know Jesus and, and it just, it, uh, they're serving the Lord. I'm serving the Lord. And my grandmother, uh, is in heaven and I'm satisfied. This is a reason we're not rewarded as soon as we go to heaven is because our life goes on, our work goes on. And, um, uh, so every, every time I speak, every time I, uh, do something that's worthy of honor, my grandmother is getting another crown. Uh, you know, it's just because she never, uh, got to travel, do what she wanted to do, had an eighth grade education, but through, uh, my two brothers and I, she's touched more lives than, than probably people who, uh, have, uh, have traveled the world. Uh, sounds like an unbelievably uh, faithful woman, and she may have been the toughest person that you've ever encountered. Oh, she she has she's she's no doubt the uh, the epitome. I'm talking about the book on top of the book that is what true grit and and trust in God and hard work uh, produces. And thank God we have lived in a nation to where somebody of my background can have a life worth living and influence others. This is why if, if our nation goes down the tubes, it's going to go down with my fingerprints on the side of the tubes because I've been blessed. I've been blessed beyond words uh, could ever say. Can the 18-year-old or 11-year-old version ever imagine you speaking in front of 17,000 people? Oh, no, no. It's unbelievable. No, there was no. After the Lord really changed my life, I, I had one goal, and that was uh, uh, my grandmother had deeded us five acres each, and mine was just basically a gully on uh, our uh, farm. And, but it was clear we had cleared it off and uh, from timber. And uh, I remember as plain as if it was yesterday, I would, I would dream about getting a, a, a what we called a trailer then, a mobile home. Uh, you know, not a double wide, that wasn't even invented then, but uh, just something that I could have running water, dig a well, and, and maybe find somebody that would love me and, uh, uh, could get married and have kids and, and, and just live in a trailer. I, I thought that was because I went into one, a nice one that uh, one of my friends had. And I thought, okay, I've died and gone to heaven. They've got everything here. It's all set up. They roll it in on wheels and, you know, put a, uh, no, I, that, that was my ambition in life. Well, the, the, 
the structure you grew up in, can you describe it for me? Like, was it uh, one or two bedrooms kind of thing? No, it, it was, it was, a it was a, a old, um, uh, home that was built. It was the foundation was rocks, just rocks, no cement or anything like that. Just rocks, big rocks. Uh, it was, uh, uh, four rooms, had a kitchen and had a dining room and the fireplace was on either side of it. Uh, the room is right in the middle of the room. So either someone was someone's kitchen wants it. And then you had a living room, had another fireplace and then one bedroom. My grandmother sleep, uh, slept in the, um, living room where the, uh, we heated that room in the winter time. And all of the rest of us uh, uh, slept in a room that had a fireplace, but the chimney was all cracked and everything. And so we couldn't have, uh, um, we couldn't have uh, uh, a fire in it. And so I have slept under as many as uh, 13 covers, quilts. Uh, you know, you're as tired when you get up in the morning as you did because you had to stay warm. I've, I've, uh, uh, you know, uh, watch my brothers and I, we would get tickled at one another because we would get up and the floor would be so cold uh, that our feet would stick to it because they'd be moist from under that cover. And it just, I mean, that's the kind of life that we grew up and we'd run and get into the uh, one room that was heated. And uh, so that's where we lived and, and uh, uh, had two big porches and that's where my grandmother washed and, and did the laundry and everything's on the back porches. And, um, uh, we had a cellar, uh, that raised up under the hallway between the bedroom and the uh, living room. And, um, that's where my grandmother's uh, old singer treadle sewing machine was where she sewed and did everything that she could. And in that cellar, we kept all of our canned goods because we raised everything that we ate, uh, except what I traded for at the grocery store, by the way. I married the grocer's daughter. We've been married 45, going on 46 years. So the moral of that story is you make enough trips to the grocery store, you get a wife. And uh, so, but that's, that's strange. And it was, uh, the floor uh, was, it was wood. It was, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, just uh, uh, tongue and groove wood, walls, floor, ceiling, everything was the same. Mm. And uh, so it was all wood house. And uh, the windows, we couldn't open or shut. So in the wintertime, we, uh, we were cold. And in the summertime, we were uh, scalding hot because we couldn't raise the windows. And we couldn't afford to buy new windows. We barely uh, could just live. And so that would have been luxury. So we put hard plastic over it. I mean, a, a kind of hard, thick plastic over them to keep the uh, wind out. But that was about it. And uh, just you think of Appalachian kids. And I was an Appalachian kid. Yeah, and people don't talk about uh, stories like yours at all. Like I, your story is so uh, foreign to most people. How you grew up, that I, I, it's almost hard for them to to fathom and or appreciate what what you went through. Uh, and I, I, it's, this is kind of a strange question, Tony. But um, was there one bed in the bedroom for? You and your brothers? There were there were two. Uh, there actually was one bed, but. Uh, uh, Someone knew our plight. Uh, I don't even remember who it was and, and gave my a small, what we would call a twin bed today. It was actually smaller than that, but my, I can't remember how we chose. We might've drawn straws or something, but anyway, my brother, John got it. And so, uh, Jim and I had sleep together. My two brothers, by the way, are James and John, uh, with Jimmy and Johnny growing up. And, and so Johnny got the bed. And Jim and I still had to sleep together, which I hated. 
but you know, is is what it was. But uh, it was a it was a uh, an incredible experience growing up. And by the way, my two brothers and I are still very very close today. My my wife says she'd never seen three brothers as close. We never did fight. We would argue from time to time and have little squabbles, but we never hit one another. We never raised our hands toward one another. We were just trying to survive. And and a lot of our fights were over. Somebody would catch one of us, say something, and, and beat us up. We'd go find them, all three of us, and just beat the tar out of them, you know. And so the, the people got to leaving us alone because they didn't feel like it was worth it. Well, yeah, because they were going get, to get beaten up. Yeah, no, we were going to get them sooner or later. <laughs> I asked you the bed question because I uh, I grew up in a two bedroom home, um, no nothing like the way you grew up. It was a, a brick small brick rancher, and it's just my sister and me staying in the same room. And and a lot of people I tell that to, they're like, I can't believe you were in the same room with your sister. And I'm like, well, that's just how it was for us. And I, my first cousin, who was ten years older than me, I was eight at the time, he was eighteen. He and I slept in the same twin bed. And people are like, you slept in the same bed as your cousin. I'm like, that's just how we had to do it. Oh, it no. It and and when, when they would have a friend over, uh, I rarely had any over. I was so embarrassed by the way that we lived. And um, uh, because, when you know, we just we just didn't. And so uh, from time to time, they would have a friend over. And, and we would let, let the friend have the single bed. And all three of us boys would sleep together. Now, you know, that's one thing when you're seven, 11 and 12, it's another thing, uh, when you're 12, uh, 16, 17, and this was not a queen bed. This was a, a full size bed and, uh, it's not big. No, no, it's not big at all. And, uh, a lot of people don't even have those anymore, you know? And so I'm talking about couples and stuff, but, right. uh, all to say it, it's just, it, it was the way we grew up, but it, I was so ashamed of it. I can't even, I'm, I'm ashamed that I was ashamed, but you know, I, I, I was, I was embarrassed uh, because again, this was sixties and seventies. And so, uh, I, for instance, I always wanted to be in the boy Scouts and I never could be in the boy Scouts and, and we had no cash money. Uh, we worked, we worked like dogs and we do it, but we bought our own school clothes. You know, I, uh, part of the fights that I was in is I had one pair of pants, I had two shirts. And so I wanted to, I, like, for instance, if we were out playing ball, I would never slide in because I was afraid I'd rip my pants or something. And then the Grammy would have to patch them. And then that'd be other fights from people making fun of that. And it was not back in the days when uh, wearing ripped jeans and stuff was cool. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you wore nice stuff. And, and so uh, my grandmother would have to wash on uh, the, our stuff, wintertime, summertime, whatever. And so I didn't want to cause her that kind of work. And I didn't want to have to go carry more water. If it didn't rain, we couldn't catch it off the roof. And so, yeah. uh, you know, I had to get in uh, coal and kindling to uh, start the fire again and keep the stove going. So it, it was a hassle. So uh, some people would say to me, as hardly a week went by, somebody didn't say, didn't you just wear that? I mean, do you wear the same clothes all the time, Crisp? You know, and so it's then I just bust their mouth. I mean, it was just a, a constant, uh, make fun, shame, embarrassment. And, uh, but, but many people, uh, that those were the, uh, a certain kind of people, but I tell you, people were very, I had a lot of very good friends, people that they knew what we were going through and they, they loved us and cared for us. And, uh, we had good neighbors. The closest neighbor was a mile away and they were old people and, uh, they were old then they weren't, uh, to us, but they really weren't that old, but, 
um, we work for them and help them and they would pay us something, you know, uh, maybe a quarter, 50 cents an hour. And uh, boy, that was, that was like, it was, it was wonderful for us. It was like manna from heaven. And so it's just different kind of life growing up. Well, Tony, you obviously had a, it sounds like a, a great relationship and, and tons of uh, admiration for your, your grandmother. You mentioned a principal. So you were going to school. So you had adults that in theory could have a good or bad influence on you through the, through school. And because you and I had chatted uh, a few weeks ago, I also know that you're a basketball guy. Yeah. Did you have adults in your life in the school system, whether it's a teacher, administrator, or a coach that, that had a positive influence on you? Well, yeah. So well, you, you see, again, when you're poor, people will not only think you're deaf and can't hear and make fun of you, but uh, they'll give you anything. They'll give you what they don't want. Uh, you know, and so someone gave us the way I got into basketball, someone gave us a basketball with a tumor on it, Paul. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, by that, I mean, you know, the, the basketballs used to have tubes inside of them. And when you wore them down, the tube would kind of, uh, split, uh, with the basketball, uh, cover would split and there'd be a little tumor come out. And so I, they gave us a, a basketball with a tumor on it. And so uh, I learned to dribble a basketball with both hands on dirt, keeping the tumor up all the time. So (laughs) because if a tumor hit, I was afraid it would burst. But not only that, it would go off down the hill or something, you know, so uh, it just shoot out like a rocket. So I learned uh, with both hands to do that. And so when I got a round ball on a wooden court, I mean, I was like early Magic Johnson, you know. <laughs> Pete Maravich, if he's still yeah. Yeah, You know, I could, I could dribble, do anything like that. Nobody could steal the ball from me. And so then I learned to shoot what is was then two points. It's three points now. But that was back in the day. And I learned to shoot basketball. We had a barn and somebody, I found a beauty ring on the side of a, uh, uh, the road. Beauty ring was a rim that went around uh, uh, the uh, tire and the rim on the car to kind of make it beauty and stand out. And they'd paint the inside black. And so I'm talking about a lot of redneck stuff here, but anyway, I, I, I learned, you know, just to put a ball through that hoop from a long way off. And so I'd come across a half line to shoot what was now three points, but then was, and so, you know, I was the point guard for, uh, uh, the school. And so they didn't want to fail me. So that's one reason I got through school same thing, you know, in high school. <laughs> but it, it, um, uh, I, I loved it. It was my life. It, it, it gave me something to do. And by the way, they would put the principal and the coach under the jail now because I hitchhiked home every uh, day after practice unless I get a ride from somebody and it was seven, eight miles home. And, but nobody worried about that, uh, evil then, you know, uh, I wasn't afraid of anybody picking me up. My no one was. And so people would usually pick me up and take me and I'd always have to walk a couple of miles, but that was no big deal then either. And, uh, so, uh, but my coach, uh, his name was David Pierce and before him, Kenneth Guffey, really took me in Paul. And, and, uh, I remember, um, uh, the coach who, by the way, became the superintendent of schools there. And, and we still have a wonderful relationship today. And, uh, his name was David Pierce. And, uh, he, um, uh, he became a very close friend of mine. He kind of watched out for me. He bought me. I remember we had to have in the, I was the only boy in the sixth grade that made the team. 
Uh, and um, uh, so I was uh, I was able to, you know, go travel to other schools and stuff and on the bus. That was a big deal. And um, uh, in the seventh grade, uh, we were having an exceptionally hard time that year because crops didn't do what they need to do. Tobacco crop was not that good. And so I had no money for tennis shoes and it was $7 for the tennis shoes. I remember it was Chuck's uh, Smith All-Stars, Converse All-Stars. And uh, um, uh, we were all wearing uh, the kind that had uh, high tops, you know, and so it was a big deal. And uh, so uh, I knew I, I was I was so dreading going in and telling the coach I didn't have uh, money for Converse. And I knew that I couldn't be on the team, you know, with them and stuff. And when I went in uh, on the bench where I always got uh, laid, there was a box of uh, my size Converse there. And I went to the coach and I said, coach, everybody's got shoes and this box left over. He said, now you've got shoes. And I said, what do you mean? He said, um, well, let's just keep this between us. But he said, I knew that you needed these Tony and I want you on the team. And, and, uh, he said, you got people that love you. And he said, we believe in you. Yeah. And seven bucks is probably a good chunk of change for him too. Oh, it was, it was, it was a lot of money for him. He, you know, he, uh, he was on teacher's salary. Just, uh, uh, he was just getting started himself. He was young, but, um, uh, there were, there were some good godly people that took me under their wing and watched over me the best that they could, as much as I would let them have territory in my life. And, um, uh, boy, I'm still tender toward, children today that are the rejects because Paul, I was a reject of our culture. I, w I was a discard of our, of our society there. And the wonderful thing about God is he is in the business of taking rejects and discards. And my life verse is in the book of first Corinthians, where it says not many mighty, not many noble, not many of good birth. And by the way, the Greek word there is eugenics, not of, uh, uh not good DNA. Mm. Uh, God is in the business of taking, uh, rejects and nobodies and, and doing something and making them somebodies. And I'm so grateful for that. So, uh, I, I am kind of the uh, the man that's always looking for that uh, person that nobody else wants that, uh, you know, and God's let me walk with giants, but, but I, my heart is still for that little guy out there. And that's why, you know, to everybody, I, I'm not Dr. Smell fungus, you know, I have degrees and all those kind of things, but people know me as brother Tony. Yeah. Tony, I, I am so happy I, I, you and I have met uh, your, your story is uh, powerful and, unbelievable and inspiring. And, and, and we're not even past the age of 19 yet, uh, talking about your life story. So, uh, your grandmother, uh, you have this moment with your grandmother where it really turned your life around. Um, yes, it did. And, and so you're, you're 19. What are you doing at the age of 19 when, when you're starting to make this major turn? Yeah, well, I was, um, actually, uh, working for my, uh, for my wife's dad in the store. And, um, uh, we used to burst beer bottles up against the back of his store, you know, and that kind of thing. So I, you know, the old, uh, you keep your enemies closer. And so he hired me, I think more than anything, he kind of <laughs> helped me out, but also to keep an eye on me. And, uh, but the, 
they were a wonderful family. They knew uh, my background. As a matter of fact, her mother many times would come and and get me uh, and take me to vacation Bible school and to church. Mm-hmm. And Karen would be in the car, my wife. And, you know, she was four years younger than me. So, you know, when you're 11 and someone else is seven, that's a big age difference. And so she was always like a little friend, little sister, you know, and so forth. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I was 18, uh, she was 14 and she kind of grew up overnight and I thought, okay, this is worth, worth investigation. And, uh, so, you know, uh, God put our lives together, but I was working at store and then I got a job detailing cars and, uh, you know, just, uh, just from not any big jobs or anything like that. Uh, but honestly, when, when, the Lord saved me and changed my life, Paul. I, the first thing I, I did is I started reading the Bible. And uh, uh, because I had a Bible, I'd won it in the third grade for selling plastic pictures of Jesus. And uh, I'd, I sold enough, you know, out in the community uh, that I won a little uh, school Bible. And so I started reading that thing, reading it. And my grandmother got concerned about me because, you know, I was... 19 years old. I didn't want to have anything to do with women anymore. I didn't want to have anything to do with drinking, smoking, anything. <laughs> and so she really got concerned about me. I mean, I'd really gotten too saved. And so, uh, uh I didn't so, know that was such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, but, uh, after three months, I really knew God was calling me to preach. And so I said, Lord, give me a desire to study your word to, and teach me how to study. And so um, I started praying about school. I knew I needed help. I couldn't even, uh, you think my grammar and diction's atrocious now. You should have heard me then. I mean, it was in there, up there, over there. And so, you know, I just, people couldn't even understand me. So I knew I, if I was going to preach, I had to learn how, how to speak and uh, read well and so forth. And uh, so um, I started looking for schools and, uh, there were only two choices. One was a very liberal school, uh, North of Knoxville, uh, that was a Baptist school. And the other was, uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which was like a boot camp, you know, is all they were interested in is, uh, the, uh, how short your hair was and whether you, uh, spoke a certain, read a certain version of the Bible and so forth. And so I knew, knew that was not uh, well. So I, went to a man, took me, he said, I want to take you to an evangelism conference in Nashville, Tennessee. And I'd only been to Nashville once on an eighth grade trip. And so I thought that was the biggest thing in the world, capital of the state. And so I went over there to that evangelism conference and I heard a man named W.A. Criswell. He was pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, the largest Southern Baptist church in the world. And I'd never heard anybody preach like that. I'd heard a lot of preachers called East Tennessee windsuckers that were running up and down the aisle, you know, and uh, uh, breathing, you know, as they preached. And it's its its own uh, arena. And uh, so I said, Lord, help me to uh, go to school. He started a little school, an institute. I didn't care anything about accreditation. I didn't know what any of that was or anything. And so I wrote them a handwritten letter no ACT, SAT or anything, and said, will you take me in? They said, yes, if you'll come. And and so I'd never been any farther west than Nashville, didn't even know. I had $240 in my pocket that I'd saved up from hauling hay and so forth, bought a car. That's what I had left over. And so I headed out, uh, left my grandmother and went to uh, uh, Dallas, Texas, and uh, lived on $1.26 a day for the first five months. 
I lost 15 pounds the first month I was there. I went from 165 down to 150 in just like no time. And um, I ate one meal a day at the downtown YMCA. Uh, it was a dollar, uh, 99 cents for a vegetable plate, and you'd eat all you wanted to. So I stuffed myself every day and, and went to school. And the first class I had to take was Hebrew. That was all that was left when I went there. I didn't know English. And so after um, um, after two weeks, the Hebrew professor, who's internationally known, came to me and he said, uh, Mr. Chris, I can't teach you Hebrew. And I said, oh, why, Dr. Edelman? He said, you don't know English. And so he said, I, I teach you Hebrew by, teach, by uh, its relation to English. And so he said, here is a handbook. It was a little brown handbook. And he said, you're going to have to teach yourself English. I don't have time to, but I, if you can learn English, I'll teach you Hebrew. And so I went home and studied. I worked at Sears, a sporting goods salesman, as a, a part-time because I didn't have to get on any interstates. I'd never driven much. And farthest west I'd ever been was Nashville. And so I didn't know my way around, scared to death and um, so backward. And uh, so I didn't make much money. And so I'd work till about uh, 7 o'clock at night, and I studied English to, uh, from 7 at night until didn't have supper. So I'd go home and uh, to the apartment, the room I was staying in. And, um, uh, Paul, I, I studied English three hours a night. I taught myself English so I could learn Hebrew. And uh, he taught me Hebrew so well that after, uh, after the uh, second semester, I became the Hebrew tutor for the school. I, wow. it just God helped me with it. And so I, that started my pursuit. And then he said, I want you to study with me in Israel. So the next year he took me to Israel and uh, we studied there together. And he had been a missionary there. He's fluent in Hebrew and Arabic. And uh, he was a PhD uh, uh, Koine Greek scholar. So he got me involved in languages. And uh, after the first semester, I went on staff at First Baptist Church in Dallas, the largest Southern Baptist church in the world. Uh, when I was there, they crossed over the uh, 20,000 member mark, uh, which in that time, was in the mid-70s, was a huge, huge church. And W.A. Crystal was the best-known Southern Baptist in the world, and so I became his personal intern uh, for two years. And um, uh, one experience. So the you know after that the rest is history. It's just I, I just kept going to school. I've been a professional student, so to speak, and and I'm still learning today. I'm learning. I'm teaching. I'm learning. I'm teaching. That's what I do. And um, uh, just just spend a lot of time in the classroom. But more than anything, I've I've studied under great men of God. I studied under some of the greatest uh, Christian men of the last century. And, uh, and I, I'm very well aware of to whom much is given, much will be required. Uh, so you're 19 or 20 years old, and you find yourself not being fluent in any language, effectively? That's correct. That's, that's trying, correct. Trying to right. go, go through an education. That's right. That's right. And, and, and honestly, uh, knowing what a noun and a verb was, but that was about it, and I'm not sure I could have picked one out in a sentence. And um, uh, I, because I didn't have to, I had played basketball. I had been, then they could, they could pass you on what was called social promotions. That's what they called it there. In other words, there was one teacher in one subject or one class. And if they didn't want to mess with you, they could just pass you on or fail you. And they didn't want to have you again. So they just passed you on. 
So I went through school, never read a serious book till I was 19, till after the Lord saved me. Wow. Uh, certainly an indictment on uh, the public school system back then and, and maybe even now, because I, 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 I have a sense, and I, actually I have direct experience where Kids are passed on. I, I see it all the time. Um, and I wish it wasn't that like that. Coach, you know, the, the coach um, uh, that I was telling you about, when I was in the sixth grade, we'd moved into a new school, a brand new school, and he gave us a test. You know, he was not only the PE teacher, but he was health. And so every Friday we had health. And um, he gave uh, an exam. It was, I remember it was, uh, and so it was a uh, multiple choice. And it's A, B, C, or D, you know. Uh, and so I um, looked at that test, and I, I knew the first uh, two or three answers. And as soon as I started taking that test, I think there were 25 questions on it. I realized his pattern. He had set those questions up to where it was, he had be easy for him to grade. I know that now. I didn't know then, but I realized uh, he had put the alphabet from the middle uh, at the top and went to the middle. Then he started again uh, through the rest of the alphabet center uh, to the end. And so I, I just, um, I just filled it in very, very quickly. I didn't even read the thing. <laughs> I took it up there after about five minutes. It was a, it was an hour class. And after about five minutes, I took it back up there and I said, he, and of course I knew him. He was my coach. I said, you can give me an A now if you want to. <laughs> and he said, Chris, he said, if you don't have an A, if you get one question wrong, he said, I'm going to wear you out. And see, they paddle you then. And and he yeah. did yeah. from time to time. And so I said, go ahead. So I went back to my desk. <laughs> and at the end of class, he said, uh, Chris, they call me, you know, Tony every now and then, but it was mostly Chris or Crispy. And so he said, you stay behind. And he came up and he said, how did you figure that out? And I said, well, it was very simple. I could see the pattern. He said, Tony, listen to me. He said, you've been gifted by God. And he said, you have, God has a great future for you. I don't know what you're going to do in life. But he said, don't you ever believe that you're dumb? You're not. He said, you're very smart. And he said, I believe in you. It's powerful. Uh <laughs> You were not uh, interested in being educated uh, no, at no. that age. No, no, no. As a matter of fact, I just thought, shoot your best shot. I'll try it again. You know, I mean, that was just cocky attitude. You know, it's just horrible. <laughs> uh, well, it sounds like uh, the path you took uh, ended up uh, correcting a lot of that uh, immaturity. We'll call it. <laughs> so I, I, I'm going to jump. Is what they called it. Yeah. They call it what? Meanness is what they <laughs> called it. <laughs> so maybe that's a little more to the point. Yeah, uh, right. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump forward a lot um, yeah. as a way of getting into the conversation about Israel. Uh, where were you on on October seventh about the uh, the atrocities that day? Well, we were getting ready to leave. I own a touring company and uh, have for 37, 38 years, and. So we uh, had a big year lined up of groups that were coming up and we were, uh, that happened on Shabbat on a Saturday and on uh, Monday or Tuesday, we were set to leave with a, uh, a group uh, that I would be leading and teaching there. I, I take pastors and their churches over and many times just pastors groups and teach them there. 
and invest my life into them. And um, so uh, when that happened, I knew it was almost like 9-11. I knew nothing would be the same again. Uh, and um, in my lifetime, it won't be. This, this is a major turning point. Uh, and, um, uh, because of our president U S Israel relationships and, and how that happened, it's happened. It will change the world and how they look at Israel. It will change the world and how, uh, we view the middle East. Uh, and, uh, it was a cosmic shift and I had the same sense that I did in nine 11. I knew where I was. I knew what I was doing. I knew the preparation. And, uh, uh, when I heard about it, I, I really could not believe that uh, there had been that much damage done <clears throat> and we didn't know immediately how much it was uh, and how that um, um, the Israelis uh, could be so surprised by it because uh, I work with um, a lot of people, as you might imagine, in the Middle East, uh, some in intelligence and so forth, and I knew how um, they were, but I also knew that Israel was was divided. It was sidetracked. It was... Uh, um, there was a, uh, uh, a deviation from the way that, uh, Israel was looked at itself. And so, and, and there was a diversion going on and the time was right. I felt, and, and immediately it all just came to me. We had a weak administration, uh, viewed from the world leadership as weak, especially the middle East, <clears throat> wherever you are on the, uh, uh, on the uh, political scale, this is just reality. We can't change facts. It's just what it is. And, and so I knew that there was a, a chance of uh, some kind of war breaking out because uh, the Middle Eastern nations only respond to strength. And so uh, we were set up for that thing. And Israel was set up for it because they were diverted. Uh, they diverted their attention to infighting. Uh, they become uh, hubris and proud. I, I believe this is my, my assessment. Uh, that they couldn't be uh, breached and nobody would uh, attempt uh, to go against the mighty uh, IDF. And and so I think it's very much akin to the 1973 Yom Kippur War when Israel uh, felt like they could not be attacked. And they saw the tank build up and all those kind of things, but they just couldn't believe it. I think same thing, very close to that happened. I may be wrong. It's on my personal opinion. Yeah, I... Uh... I couldn't believe the uh, level and the number of people. And by level, I mean the the the, the hatred uh, right. and the anti-Semitic beh behavior. How, how right. deep it was, and and how broad it was, but by the number of people that were expressing it, I I couldn't believe it was 2023 or now 2024 no, no. that that's no, still being right. expressed. It, it it must be no, what it, it felt it, like it, back in the 30s. Yes, it was Hitler-esque. And, um, uh, and in some ways, uh, the same kind of atrocities because it's the same demonic behavior. This is supernatural behavior. It's supernatural wickedness. I mean, uh, what was done to the Israelis that day, uh, uh, we can never let the world forget this. Uh, and, and, and the reason is, is because it will repeat itself again. Uh, and I'm, uh, I fear, uh, that this is exactly what's going to happen here somewhere in the United States, simply because the same, uh, villains that did that, that same seed is here in the United States and God only knows how many sales are around the, the nation right now. So we've got to be very vigilant 
about what's going on because these people mean business. They want to destroy Israel. They want to destroy the Judeo-Christian value system and the West. And why, why, and look, a couple of facts here. One is there are uh, 15 million uh, Jews worldwide. Roughly 7 million of those are in Israel, another 6 million in the U.S. So it's really our two countries have mm-hmm. a supermajority of Jewish people. Right. And, the, and the other fact, and, and maybe my number's off a little bit, but I, there have been 19 very serious over a long period of time attempts to eradicate Jewish people from the earth. Yes, the Nazis yes. the, 19th, the 19th time. My fear yeah. is we're on the precipice of the 20th attempt. Yes, well, I, I would agree with you. And, and that's just uh, all that it is taking uh, world conditions, taking uh, the conditions in the West, in the Middle East, and uh, just being a realist. And, and uh, this is very serious, and we must take it seriously. And this is not just a run-of-a-meal uh, kind of things. Uh, this is, this is the, the most vicious attack uh, since the Holocaust. And the same mentality of the Holocaust is present among us today in far greater numbers uh, which has been evidenced than, than I think anyone believed. Yeah. And it's a reminder that people can be easily swept into, uh, this. Like I, I've seen people on social media that I, I know I wouldn't call them my friends, but I, they're acquaintances and I see them with a, a Palestinian flag protesting the existence of Israel. And I'm like, yes, you're, you're exactly right, Paul. I just saw a Prager um, a you video today. And of course, they, there's been many of these done, but it, it was very well done uh, that uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, people went out with a microphone and was asking these protesters, you know, from the river to the sea, what river is it? What sea is it? They didn't even know that. I mean, they, they didn't know that. And they, they were just saying, well, there's genocide. And, they, and, and so they... Um, that the Israelis are perpetrating uh, genocide upon the Arabs and um, uh, on and on and on. And, and it was, it was the most ignorant uh, people that you could ever imagine. Now, many of them college graduates and so forth, just, and again, that tells us something of our educational system in America and, and where we are uh, because it is, uh, it was idiocy and, uh, and it was on public display. Uh, people that ought to know better, that do not know better. Uh, but we are, we are living in a society with a mob mentality, and facts mean nothing. Uh, history means nothing. Uh, it's just, uh, if you don't like it, rewrite it. And so it's it's, it's horrible. I, I never thought I'd live to see the day, and I'm only 55, Tony. I, I, I'm, I'm flummoxed. I, I'm perplexed by the, by what I see and hear and read. Um, do, you, do you have ideas about how we can take uh, the, the ignorant amongst us and make them more knowledgeable about how things really do work? Well, I, I don't think it is a one uh, size fits all approach, but what we have to do, uh, and uh, you know, I get uh, almost put on a cross for saying this, but <clears throat> Our public education, I'm not talking about the teachers. Uh, You know, there's some good teachers, uh, great teachers, great people that are in public education. So I always want to preface what I'm saying to that. But I'm telling you, uh, we we are educating um, in a a very foolish naivete 
that um, is rewriting our own history. Uh, I teach uh, the history of Israel, and I'm finding out that most people, I can't even relate it uh, to uh, modern or ancient uh, history and uh, the last hundred years of history because uh, people in America uh, that I'm dealing with, old and young, don't know our own history. And so we, we have we have gone to uh, the kind of things, silly things that we're doing today, like critical race theory and all this kind of garbage, instead of teaching uh, 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 the great classics and teaching people how to read and write and do arithmetic and just the very basics of, of teaching of history and how we got to where we are today. And uh, the that's the enemy's uh, uh, philosophy because, you see, if, if you don't know history uh, and you don't know where you came from, you cannot know where you're going. But not only that, you're, you're, you're destined to repeat the failures of the past. And uh, that's just on a totally secular mindset. There's a whole spiritual aspect of this that intertwines within this that's too long for me to get into now. But it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's all together. We, we, we're stripping away our... our our moral base. And, and, uh, you know, I, Paul Harvey, one of the things I was blessed to be able to do is every great speaker you can imagine came through first Baptist Dallas, Texas. And I got to meet them up close. And because I was the pastor's personal intern would take them to the airport or, you know, come get them. So I spoke with me and Paul Harvey, uh, said, uh, when, when he came and spoke in, in Dallas, uh, he said um, uh, he was the first that really impressed me with this, and I've studied it uh, intentionally and intensely since. But he said um, democracy, any form of democracy, but the republic up, upon which our nation uh, was found, the, the Judeo-Christian value system, he says democracy doesn't work without a moral base, a Judeo-Christian moral base. And, and man, had he ever hit a home run by saying that, because democracy doesn't work unless there is inward restraint, moral restraint within a person. And uh, you can pass all the laws you want to. You can't change hearts with laws. And our system does not work without a Judeo-Christian value system under it. Uh, it just becomes, uh, uh, in other words, free enterprise just becomes greed and avarice and, and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, uh, the strongest survives mentality. And, uh, we, we have now taught, um, we've now taught, uh, now three or four generations, uh, that, uh, we are not made in the image of God. Uh, we're, we're here by random chance and, and, uh, the strongest survives. And so when we teach, uh, our children that they come from, uh, just a, a random chance and selection, and, and from apes and monkeys, we shouldn't be surprised when they act like apes on the streets of the cities when there's no restraint. No, that's uh, really well said and uh, a wonderful reminder of what we need to get back to as a society. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I imagine you have a rhythm to your life. Uh, and, mm -hmm. I, and tell me if, if this is accurate or not. Is the rhythm partially based on the calendar. And so there's certain times of year that you are a certain place and doing certain things. And I'm, I'm really asking, how do you spend your time in the U S and are you typically in East Tennessee? And then when you do travel, yeah. is it primarily Israel and what are you doing yeah. when you do travel? Well, well, uh, just, uh, um, uh, since COVID, uh, before COVID I had, um, 
had uh, not been a pastor. I've been a pastor for 46 years. And um, uh, I've always pastored. I've pastored rural churches out in the countryside. And I've pastored uh, a couple of mega churches, what would be called mega churches, and um, uh, in the city and rural and uh, uh, the suburbs and so forth. And uh, because I've been doing this now for uh, 48, 49 years. And so um, I, uh, up until the COVID, um, we were spending about four to five months a year in Israel because I was there teaching, researching, studying, writing, all those things. And then during COVID, I could not go. And a church uh, from the Tri-Cities area of Kingsport called me and said, we, we've had uh, some difficulty. We would uh, love for you to come in. We hear that you go in and troubleshoot churches, assess churches, and then lead them to another plateau or help them get started on the right track. I do those kind of things and have for years. And um, uh, even when I was pastoring large churches, I would do that because my heart is to train the next generation of pastors and leaders. And so I came and, and I told them I'd help them for three months. Uh, after three months, I saw, well, you know, they're going to need some more help. And, and I don't I'm not going to be going to Israel, so I'm not going to be out of the country. So I made a commitment for a year. Uh, well, I'm in my starting in my fourth year now with mm -hmm. them. And they allow me uh, 16 weeks or more if I need in Israel uh, a year. They continue to pay me just like I was right here so that I don't have to worry about a living. I help other churches all over America I invest in uh, uh People, I, I was named in August the um, uh, executive director of uh, the Center for Israel Studies at Bruton Parker College, uh, fully uh, regionally accredited uh, uh, college in South Georgia. So I'm helping them put together curriculum. I've done that for other schools and um, to help them to understand the importance of Israel and the Jews in the biblical narrative. Uh, because without the Jews, uh, there's not going to be uh, uh, the Bible that we have today. You know, just on, on, on. So what, what I do is I spend my life teaching what I call the linguistic, historical, geographical, and cultural contextual teaching of the Bible. And so I, I, am, um, uh, I teach the true Jewish roots of uh, uh, Christianity and uh, the place of Israel and the church uh, side by side in the Bible. And um, um, so now what I'm doing is I have a, uh, uh, and this is, you know, uh, personal stuff, but I have a uh, podcast now that's heard uh, in 80 nations. I've I, I taken 365 chapters of the Bible uh, that I selected, what I call key chapters. And I write something on that every day and uh, on those chapters, but I do a 15 to 20 minute podcast and I call it the 365 Bible reading plan. So now that's all over the world. And I've done now a thousand as of today, a thousand and thirty nine uh, podcast of 20, 15, 20 minutes uh, each day. And, and so I'm writing, I'm um, putting together uh, now uh, about to uh, start on uh, developing a study Bible. Uh, that will be built around um, uh, warriors uh, and uh, then and now for uh, law officers, military, uh, uh, police, uh, people in our federal agencies, CIA, FBI, anyone that is in uh, 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 
a warrior's position. Uh, the this study Bible will be for them, and I'll have the 365 plan because we've got to get people back to reading the Bible and studying the Bible. Now, what somebody says about the Bible, but the Bible, my podcast, I say the most important thing about my podcast is the scripture you read that goes with it because that's what changes lives. And so I, I am uh, I'm a pastor of a local assembly, a growing uh, local church in Kingsport, Tennessee, uh, but um, I travel all over America, helping churches. We do a Passover Seder at the convention center in Kingsport, a big Marriott center that uh, is simulcast nationwide where people can actually see uh, a Jewish Seder uh, and with the uh, uh, elements that Jesus uh, uh, was doing the night he was betrayed and took what we call the Lord's Supper and teach them about communion from a biblical standpoint. And, and basically just teach the Judaic aspects, which has been lost in the West. Uh, and uh, so that's that's what I do. And I do it year round. So my calendar is really full if on when there's not war. I'm in Israel usually January, February, March, and then come home, then go back in May, maybe in some in June. And uh, then I'm traveling. The church allows me to travel. And uh, many times people come here, but I'm involved in just educating and discipling people. And um, uh, that's what I do as a way of life. I'm all in, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I work, uh, I told someone, uh, I, I, my PhD is in organizational leadership. And um, uh, so I, I help a lot of pastors to organize their churches and so forth and for success and biblical on biblical basis. And, and I'm doing more now than I've ever done. Uh, God's let me have good health. And um, uh, someone asked me in a conference, I was, I said, how do you do all that you're doing in your 60s? I said, well, I only work a half a day, six days a week. And they said, you work four hours a day. I said, you must work for a union. I said, uh, uh, half a day is 12 hours. I said, I average 12 hours a day. And uh, uh, so I, I said, I work six days a week. Uh, but when I take off, I take off. I, I, I you know, I, I really take off and, and, um, I, I'm just out. And my idea of a vacation now is going and sitting somewhere and staring either in an ocean or a mountain or something, you know, there's, I'm over six flags and Dollywood and, you know, uh, Disney world. If you said to me, uh, we're going to give you an all expense paid, uh, um, trip to, uh, Disney world and, uh, uh, or you can ram your head through a wall. I would say, which wall would you like to, for me to ram it through? <laughs> uh, before we go, because uh, I think we talked about doing roughly an yeah. hour, and we're a little over an hour now, and I'm enjoying the conversation, but I do have commitments like I imagine you do. Oh, right? no. so do um, the, the Warrior Walk, uh, tell, tell me about the Warrior Walk. Yeah, well, uh, uh, i tell you the best way that I can tell, if anybody has uh, – access to the internet, they need to go to warriors-walk.com, warriors with an S, dash walk.com. And what it is, uh, a guy who owns a, a dear friend of mine, uh, we partnered uh, to form this. He owns a very well-known worldwide uh, intelligence agency. He works with the federal government and our uh, federal agencies, you know, to staff them. And, and he's got a very, very large human network. He's, uh, and he loves Jesus with all of his heart. And, and so, uh, his leadership does as well. As a matter of fact, 
you can you can go to fivestonesintelligence.com. The five stones will give you an idea. But it is a um, um, on on the cover page that he he says that they are uh, followers of Jesus. The leadership are in Judeo Christian in their value system, so forth. So he's unashamed of this. And yeah. so we started this to to take uh, warriors. I'm talking about uh, people that have been involved in CIA, FBI, all of our DEA, federal agencies, uh, state agencies. Uh, uh, military, uh, Navy SEALs, uh, Rangers, people, uh, sheriffs, uh, just anyone that is uh, a special agent, law enforcement, military, we take them to Israel. Uh, many of these, uh, we pay their way. We raise money and, and pay their way. Others pay a portion. We pay a portion. Uh, some can pay their own way. But we do. We take them to Israel. They train uh, the same place the IDF trains with the IDF with whomever we're working with. They're trained at uh, every night while we're in Israel. We're there for nine days. Uh, we have um, specialists come in from Mossad, Shin Beit, Shabak, all of these places. Everything from cyber warfare. They get uh, 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 briefings and education to um, uh, Krav Maga, you know, where you're really uh, uh, going through it in the field. And um, uh, with, you know, uh, weapons training, all those kind of things. And then I take them out uh, about uh, six, uh, seven hours a day and teach them the Bible on site. Uh, They can ask any questions they want to, nothing's off limits, but I take them from the Galilee and from the north, uh, Syrian-Lebanese border, the Valley of Tears, all the way to uh, uh, Masada, and uh, we we go. Uh, I, I just teach them. I pour my life into them, and we form relationships through that. And when they get back, as a matter of fact, this year we're probably going to have a couple of conferences here in America for Warriors Walk, where people can come and uh, be taught. We we can't go to Israel right now, but we can bring Israel to us. And so that's what we're going to do and bring in the top people uh, to help them. But our goal is to uh, be a resource for these uh, uh, people in law enforcement, these warriors, these people that are out there on the front lines every day, active, still active, and, uh, and that need to form a network. Because just think about it, Paul, if you're in law enforcement or you're in the military, you're in special uh, forces, somehow you're a special agent, uh, you you basically are owned by whatever it is that you're doing. You're you're there uh, many times, seven days a week, or you're working on the weekends when everybody else is going to church. And many of them do not have any kind of network whatsoever. So we're a network for them. Mm-hmm. I counsel with people, talk with people all over the world, but especially here in the United States, every week of my life and walk them through a lot of stuff. And I'm training others to do that so that we can form a network to be an underpinning, a net, a safety net for them, um, for all of these in these uh, agencies where they can't talk to anybody, they need to do it in a secure way. And so we make sure they can do that. that that's wonderful, Tony. I'm so glad you and your friend are doing that. Um, it has to be unimaginably powerful for everybody that goes through that experience. That, that's great. No, it's, it's life-changing. As a matter of fact, um, I could tell you story after story, uh, but I have to uh, leave out too many names and places for it to make sense because of security reasons. But I, 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 I uh, deal with people that are on the front lines uh, 
every day of their life that are in some of the greatest missions that you hear about on TV and this, that, and the other, but they have to go back home and PTSD is a real thing. And so uh, many of these uh, people have been our strategic leaders in other uh, nations, but they come home and they've got to switch gears. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And uh, you can only categorize so much in your mind. And so uh, what we have found out is that Jesus is not only the answer uh, in this certain arena of church and religious things, Jesus is the answer to life. And we teach, uh, what I teach is that Jesus doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be your life. And so uh, uh, that's that's really where we're coming. We're, we're talking about people that are already familiar with sellout. And so we teach them to sell out to uh, God himself to the Lord Jesus and life takes on whole new meaning then. And that helps them to, uh, they find out that the Lord's with them no matter what they're doing. And, uh, so it's, it's a great comfort to them and encouragement to them, Paul. No, that's great. And, and guys coming home, uh, certainly need that help. I, I've, I've deployed and it was not an easy transition for sure. No, so, oh, I wish I, I wish I knew you back then, Tony. Um, Last couple topics, one's a pretty quick hitter, and then the last one um, yeah. you can answer as short or as long as you want. Yeah, uh, You're going to be in the Richmond area soon, right? I'm going to be there um, next week. Uh, we do, Mark and I do something, Mark started years ago. I just got in on it, but we've developed it into a great, so it's called First Friday Shabbat. And what we do at these First Friday Shabbats, we have a Shabbat meal uh, and uh, at a church or a uh, uh, gymnasium, wherever we are. And people come in by the hundreds. I mean, literally by the hundreds. And um, uh, we teach them about Shabbat from a biblical standpoint. What is it for the Jew? What is it for the non-Jew? Uh, I teach uh, the um, uh, seven uh, Moedim, the uh, special appointed days that we call feasts, festivals, and fast days. Uh, you know, Passover, uh, Shavuot, the Pentecost, and all that. I teach them to try to teach our Judaic roots during that time and help them to understand the Jewish people. One reason why there's so much anti-Semitism is because uh, the church of Jesus doesn't realize because we've separated so from our Jewish roots, we don't realize who we are and who they are. And most, most people in the South that I've talked to even today that are outside of the major cities in the South have never met a Jew personally. That's crazy. And no, it's, it is crazy, but it's the way it is. It's our world. And and so uh, what we try to do is is do this first Friday Shabbat. So I will be at uh, Berea Baptist Church in uh, uh, Rockville, um, right outside of Richmond on Friday. And then I'll be preaching there Sunday because Mark and his pastor are on a solidarity mission over in Israel this uh, next week. They leave Sunday afternoon. And so I am uh, up there uh, and going to be helping their church and working with their church uh, to accomplish what that pastor wants to accomplish. And that's really what I do as I come in as a, alongside the pastor and uh, can help them to transition more to a biblically based church and not just out there in a traditional sense doing uh, what we've done. Because whatever we've done, it's not working. The Church of Jesus is becoming weaker and weaker and smaller and smaller in relation to the population. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. Uh, so I bring that up one for, for people to know that, um, and two, 
uh, I'm going to physically meet you. I'll meet you in person. Oh, great, great. Yeah. Wonderful. Boy, I look forward to that, Paul. That's going to be good. La last question uh, or last yeah. uh, topic. Tell me about your family, your immediate family these days. Well, I, uh, I married my childhood sweetheart. And uh, we started seeing one another when I was 18, 14. Don't, don't anybody stone me. You know, it's a different day, a different time. There's nothing hanky-panky going on. I never touched her. Uh, she was pristine, pure. When we got married, I was 22. She, she graduated from high school. I married her the next week and uh, brought her to Texas uh, where I was in school. She started in school with me, got pregnant. And um, uh, so she couldn't finish her education there. She's followed me all over the earth. June, we'll be married 46 years. We have three grown children and uh, the youngest 35, the oldest is 44. And uh, my daughter in the middle, uh, two sons on either end, and my daughter in the middle married a pastor. He pastors uh, First Baptist Farmington, Arkansas. And um, uh, they've got uh, two girls, Autumn and Lily. And then my uh, uh, oldest son has uh, three children, uh, the oldest 14, uh, uh, Joel, and then uh, 11, uh, 12 now is uh, Judah, and then Lila May, uh, their daughter, and my youngest son uh, is uh, in Knoxville, and uh, he is uh, about to get married as well. So, you know, they're, they're within, uh, Charity is about um, uh, 10 hours away, but the other two are about an hour and 20 minutes away from us, so that's good. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Tony, you, you have yeah, Karen, Karen has, has been the epitome. If, if people ask me, and number one, she's, she's drop dead gorgeous. And so we're more in love now than we've ever been in our lives. And, and we've worked at it hard. We've had our ups and downs and, and, uh, like everybody else, but, uh, she's got stick to itiveness and God has granted us, uh, endurance and, and we've raised these children. And, and, uh, let me tell you, she is the epitome of Southern elegance. She's poised. She's calm. She's, she's the opposite of me. And, uh, you know, uh, uh we stay married because of incompatibility. And, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, we, we complement each other. And so she's a, she's a faithful wife, a wonderful, godly woman, much godlier than I am. Uh, she's, uh, in the word every day. And I just praise the Lord for that. And, and what a wonderful mother she's been. Uh, really well said, man. I'm, I'm going to have to listen to this a few more times so I can say powerful things about my wife because that, that that was beautiful. Uh, mm -hmm. Tony, I really appreciate you doing this. You've lived an incredible life. You, you're still working half days, which I love that it's 12 hours, yeah. not four. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you're still doing incredible things. And I really appreciate everything you've done for your fellow man. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to meeting you next week, God willing. enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.